dive back in. Uh, we've got about 45 minutes left, and so we're going to be as diligent as we can to get you guys out right at 8.30 and still make time for some more questions. So, um, for one of the questions that was asked, there's lots of different cultures, there's lots of different things that need to be acknowledged, not just in the past 150 years, but during the time that the scriptures, excuse me, the scriptures were written, uh, lots of different things are being circulated as far as literature goes during that time. It's important to acknowledge what's happening in that time and place. And so we're starting in the creation story, and so this is an ancient Near Eastern context. So we're not in dialogue with the modern scientific ideas about world origins. Oftentimes the conversation around Genesis and maybe even some of the nuances of was it seven days and all of, the, all of those uh, questions, which are good questions we're not tackling tonight, um, are not the questions that the people of the ancient Near Eastern time were asking. In fact, the, the dialogue surrounding the time of ancient Near Eastern literature had a lot more to do with the Egyptian, Babylonian, and Canaanite cosmologies, or the origins of the world. And so the early chapters of Genesis accurately present two accounts of cosmic and human origins in the language and ideas of the ancient Hebrews. These texts should not be removed from their ancient context and read as if they're referred to as a process of cosmic or human origin in the 21st century understanding of scientific terms. They speak in terms of an ancient Near Eastern perception of the world and should be interpreted within that setting. When we discern the meaning of a text in their ancient context, we find that they constitute a worldview statement about God and his relationship to the world and about humans and their relationship to God and the world. So the basic worldview statement transcends ancient cultural settings and commands the attention of God's people during that place, during that time. So a common motif that's being uh, expressed during the time of the ancient Near Eastern writings, so Genesis is being written, um, but first there's two major documents that are being circulated during that time. One is called the Enuma Elish. Is anyone familiar with that? It's a Babylonian uh, piece of cosmology. And then Canaanite, which is the Baal epic. And we see the god of Baal show up in the scriptures during the um, time of the, the Old Testament quite frequently. Um, he's a powerful god that's on, often in contrast with the Yahweh god. And these cosmologies uh, talk about creation stories, but they're a result of the battle of the gods that are taking place. So in Babylon, it's a, it's a battle between Marduk and Tiamat, these are just fun names, you don't have to remember all of this stuff, but Tiamat is portrayed as a female, and she is portrayed as an agent of chaos that needs to be destroyed. And there are tones of assault baked into the narrative around how she is to be destroyed. Um, so the, the, the important uh, thing to extract from this motif that's being talked about during the ancient Near Eastern time is that creation comes out of a type of chaos that is destructive, a type of chaos that is abusive, and it all has to do with power. The second inf uh, influential text during that time was the Canaanite uh, text of the Baal epic, and this was about Baal versus Yam, so a very similar tone of the battle of the gods who had more power and who had the ability to destroy. And in there, another woman is highlighted, Ashura, and she's the goddess of fertility. 
So instead of needing to be destroyed from, um, a, not from an assault perspective, she was someone to be elevated and worshiped if you wanted to tap into her fertility power. So two uh, things to highlight here is one portrayal of woman or female in the Babylonian text is an agent of chaos that needs to be destroyed graphically. The second from the Canaanite representation is that she is a goddess of fertility and she should be worshiped. And in between these two frames of what it means to be female in particular, we see the Genesis narrative emerge. It's a response to, a response to an ancient cosmology that wants to cut through the two traditional understandings of how the world began to came, come into order. Israel's God, Yahweh, he has no rivals and he is simply speaking reality into being. So creation is not emerging from the battle of the gods. Rather, he creates from nothing, something, and it's beautiful. Israel, God's Yahweh, is depicted as a royal artist, not a bloodthirsty warlord. And Israel's God creates male and female in his image. They are not God, nor are they agents of chaos, but they are like God bearing his image and given authority to rule and subdue or cultivate the uncultivated land. So that is some helpful ancient Near Eastern history and perspective to help orient us around what the Genesis narrative is emerging out in front of. These two stories in particular are the most dominant stories during the time of the ancient Near East. And they speak particularly of a type of humanity that is emerging that either needs to be absolutely destroyed particularly the females, or worshipped. And right in between, we see God speak beautifully creation into being and says, no, they're not gods, nor are they worthy of being destroyed, but they bear my image, and they're going to be like me in that I give them authority to rule and subdue and bring order out of chaos. So there's some orientation, and, and Richard's going to give some examples, I believe, yes? I've changed my mind. Okay. That's okay. Okay, here we go. I've inspired something new to come out. I love it. <laughs> you talked about origins. I think, like, let's look at Genesis okay. first. Um, so the plan, rest of the Bible time is now look at Genesis, because we'll talk about why that's super important. But then have a little bit of, like, skip the stone through the rest of the Old Testament. Because there was this question of, like, okay, but um, what do we do with this library of literature that emerges out of patriarchal cultures in the ancient Near East. And so things good questions, good things to wrestle with. So if you've got a Bible, open to Genesis because I want you to see this for yourself. Um, if you haven't got a Bible, I'm sure you've got a phone. Google will help you. So I love these chapters. Just got, just got to talk about stuff just to do with male female. Yep. Stay on track. Stay on track. We're going to do another class uh, in a while where we'll go back and do a deeper dive into Genesis and other things. So I feel okay. But right from the beginning, okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. So there's this disordered, empty kind of chaos. That needs to be tamed. And there was darkness over the face of the deep. But the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's a sort of 
untamed raw potential but it's couched in language of like yeah there's something like not good about this yet there's something almost like threatening or I don't know you know the sort of thing that makes you want to run home lock the door and turn all the lights on okay and God starts to work God says let there be light there was light verse uh, well you can hit the beginning of the paragraphs Uh, verse 6 God said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters verse 9 let the waters under the heaven be gathered together and dry land appear verse 11 let the earth sprout forth vegetation and plants can you see what God's doing there is an order bringing to God's activity there is an empty disordered state and because of God's activity there is a filling of what is empty into an ordered state and this all culminates in the creation of humankind and the the writer wants us to spot that there's a kind of crescendo of purpose a crescendo of beauty and the climax of that is is humans arriving on the scene so depending on how small your text is flip over a page Um, And in verse 26 of chapter 1 now, God says, Let us make humans in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Look, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with the seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was morning and evening, the sixth day. So, I just want you to notice, like, the big, big picture. God steps into a situation that's like, ooh, I've got to run in, lock the door, turn all the lights on. And starts bringing order by exerting his power to shape creation. It's really interesting that then God turns to these humans and says uh, that the, their commission in verse 28, those numbers are really small, <laughs> is to subdue and have dominion. This is warfare language. Like these humans are invited. And and the fact that it's warfare is a really interesting thing about the cosmic story. But I want you to see the similarity. What God invites humans into mirrors the things God just did on the first page of our Bible. The kind of way God is acting. The way he's exerting his power. To, to, to fill, to order, to bring life so that everything can flourish, so that things can be provided for. God now turns to the humans and says, 
carry on. And so let's now like notice the details of like how that's going to happen and who's included, like who has what role. Okay, because if we're going to talk gender roles, gender distinction, we're going to play spot the difference. Are there differences? So let us make humans in our image. Okay, and an image bearer talks about a royal priesthood, which is great because we've been talking about royal priesthoods on Sunday mornings. Okay? There's two main functions of an image in the ancient Near East. One is kings would set up images of themselves throughout their territory. And it was a way of kind of stamping their authority. It would be like mine. It's like putting a, when you get a label maker when you're six years old and you, know, you put your name on all your stuff. This is mine. I have authority here. And so it talks about royal authority. Okay, and so putting an image somewhere is a way of representing that you have authority in a place. But the other key use of an image is the word idol in our English translations. You would make an image of your God and you would put it in your temple to represent that God to you. It was a priestly function. It's a way of bridging the gap between the realm of God and the realm of dirt and earth that we're in, and bridging those two. And so huge uh, sort of value being placed on these humans, that they are the representatives of God's divine royal power, his royal mandate, his rulership over creation, and he's going to vest that authority in humans. And the priestly role of actually representing God. Like, how is the bridge between the realm of God and the realm of creation going to be bridged? It's going to be the humans. Well, which ones? I mean, if we had loads of time, I'd be really pedantic and the teacher and we we would come out and I'd be like, we'll read it out loud and try and spot the difference, but we'd have time for that. But we begin with this gender-neutral let us make Adam, let us make Homo in Latin, let us make humans. Which ones? Well, it says later on, he made them in his image, male and female. Both of them, both male and female, are fully the image bearers of God. Whether you're a man or a woman, you have been designed by God to be a being in the cosmos who is able to exercise God's divine royal power and authority in the world and to image God in the world as a priestly representative to show the world and to, to bring the influence to the world of what God is like Amen. I mean that's amazing but really that contrasts with a patriarchal world where only the men get to do the religious leadership and only the men get to authoritatively I don't know, shape the world bring order to the world like post second world war you know, oh, it'd be better if we put the men back in charge of how we're going to develop technology after the war, right so it's a real contrast that we see in Genesis I want you to notice uh, as well that part of this mandate is to be, be fruitful and multiply Mul- multiply <laughs> it's like skipping <laughs> multiple long jumps uh, multiply to fill the earth. Um, it's, 
amazing how many times I've run into books where the idea of being fruitful has cropped up and the reflex in, in an author or a preacher is. So this is talking about like you girls being homemakers at home and raising children. Who is given the responsibility of raising the next generation in Genesis 1? It's not rhetorical. Who? All of them, male and female. The role to look out into the world and shape it is for men and women because they are both made in God's image. They're both made in his likeness. And the role to like, okay, how are we going to create the engine of humans that's going to do this is men and women. So these, these are like ground zero vital things. And they're vital because the scriptures keep, I don't know, there's a, there's a meta-narrative of God having a blueprint, an ideal, a way things are supposed to be. And it gets laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we hit Genesis 3, and God reveals to us that the blueprint gets broken. And from Genesis 3 all the way through the rest of the Bible to a few like, now we're getting to the end of the story moments, it's all about how do we get the blueprint back. So when we want to think about like what are God's ideals, Genesis 1 and 2 are vitally, vitally important, most important chapters in our Bible um, because of all the identity that comes, uh, comes out of it, comes out of the page. Um, but... Uh, we well, let's. I, I'm going to mention this briefly. I think Shelby did a really good job talking about this on Sunday. If you weren't there Sunday, it's online. Listen to Shelby unpack Genesis two. But we get the whole cosmic origin crescendo into humankind, and then it's like the lens clicks and we zoom in on. Okay, now let's tell like the micro story of human origins, not cosmic origins. And so we get a sort of retelling. And I want you to notice uh, what happens because God brings about all these creatures, okay? And they're all male and female, all male and female, all male and female. And, uh, and then the, the story is told now where the male of the human species is by himself. And God parades all the animals in front of him just to rub it in which I just I think what a funny like what must it have been like to be the Adam character here just being like alright dude I get it like how many more animals do I have to name like I get it like where's mine like there's you've created the nucleus of what it takes to like go be a species and there's an incompleteness to Adam um, and, but the, the language is really telling um, and so we get uh, where is it, where is it, where is it yes in verse 20 for the man there was not found a helper suitable to him so the word helper is easer now it's kind of unfortunate that this word is helper in our English translations because, uh, you know, if I say, oh, this is Molly, she's one of the pastors on staff, um, there's a sense of equality and partnership and sharedness in the mission of this church um, that comes out. 
If I say, this is Molly, and she's my helper, that has very different connotations in English, right? That she's subordinate, she's only really here to support me. Um, you know, if it was a magic act, it would be, this is my lovely helper, which then demean her further to only being of value because of her sexualization. So you know, this word is just, is, is filled with connotation for us. So I, I don't know if you're the sort of person that's happy doing this. I would cross out the word helper if you've got that in your translation and write the word partner. Because it does, the Hebrew word does not have those connotations of subordination or like it just being a support role. In fact, most of the time this word gets used in the Hebrew scriptures is actually where God is showing up to be the easer, to be the partner, to be the one who is actually coming in as someone who is better than you, more well-equipped, more powerful, and you are in need that he can do something about it. And so that's Adam's experience of incompleteness and like, oh, I need an easer and God being like, I'll bring you what's needed. Like, if anything, the, the dynamics of needing help and receiving help ought not to make us think of the woman as subordinate, but actually maybe better, if anything. Now, the way that this, the whole story pull, uh, you know, uh, plays out, like equality comes then into central focus. But it's just amazing to me that, if anything, we should probably have lent the other direction um, but so often we, we lean the way of reading this and thinking, um, you know, Adam needed a psychic. Like, he's Batman, she's Robin. Um, but that's, that's not what the scriptures say. And um, a, a helper, connecto, suitable, matching, like corresponding to him. Um, all that really means is, like, as a human, he's got a distinctive divine call different to the animal's. So if God had been like, hey, here's your cricket, or here's your mouse, or Adam would have been like, thanks, dude, like a nice pet, but I'm not sure how that's really going to help with the whole subdue, bring order, you know, tame the chaos, do God's work thing. He, he needed someone who could fulfill the same mandate. And so it talks, this is a, a valuing of the, the image and the commission that's been given to human beings. But it goes wrong. And so let's just keep reading a bit here into chapter 3. Um, and so, so far, lots of equality, right? We're not seeing massive differences like, oh, wow, I think like he said, Adam, do this, Eve, do that, yada, yada, yada. Well, the serpent pops up, talking snake, what's up with that? And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he approaches just the woman. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And this is the first moment in reading the ground zero of everything that matters where we go, uh, what? Like what just happened? Okay. Um. We've got this talking snake who rocks up and is sort of questioning what God has said. But in some ways where there's these really sneaky, like, baiting the hook, you know, to, I don't know, corrupt your line of thought. 
like he's not coming out with out and out lies, but he's framing things in a way that's just like really making it hard for Eve at this point. And rather than saying like, no, God said we can eat all the trees, but we shouldn't eat that one or we'll die. She's like, oh no, don't eat it or touch it. I mean, that's like what you do with your like your four-year-old, you know, like don't don't you even look at that or you'll be in trouble, right? It's that kind of exaggeration. Um, now, we don't know Eve's motivations, okay? But I just want to point out that I've heard an awful lot of people talk about, yeah, look, that was really dumb of Eve. Or maybe Eve just had the kind of personality where she was like, I just want to be so careful to obey God. I'm going to take the thing he put a ring around and put a ring around that. We, we don't know. And so actually, like, other scriptures may help fill in the blanks for us. But I'm amazed how often people leap in to fill in Eve's motivations here and, and why this goes down the way it goes down. We've got to make sure we just stick to what the text says. Okay? Um, so we get that. And uh, the serpent says to the woman, you won't surely die. God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. I've, again, heard many a sermon. This is like Eve was weak. She was gullible. She fell for it. Like this is like she's the source of all pride. Well, you know, what it actually says is that she saw it was beautiful and it would make you wise. And given what the servants had said, she thought it might make her like God. She had a set of good desires. And the serpent used that as bait to hoodwink her into believing that actually this would be a good thing. Satan didn't come along and say, like, I, I know this is like evil. But if you sleep with your boyfriend, you'll really enjoy it. And she did it. It's not that sort of story. This is a story of, of, of tragedy, of naivety. And the Western modern church, not just that, but we have a dominated way of talking about this text where it's all about the pride of Adam and Eve, that they willfully rebelled. But you know what? The majority of church history is filled with people, with, with, with saints, with early church fathers, who thought that what this story was about was the tragedy of humankind, that they, they just did, they couldn't resist. They, they just, they were hoodwinked by the enemy. And this, this is tragically sad. Yeah, what is Deceived is what... Deceived, yeah, deceived. But again, it, I just, I'm pointing out, there's a dominant narrative here in our Christian, evangelical, Western, modern culture that's quite different to the way the church has traditionally looked at this text. So she took some, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Again, I'm just going to point out, right? So many people are like, yeah, Eve was a deceived women, a deceivers from the beginning. Like, women have a natural propensity to deceive men, because that's what happened in the beginning. And, and Eve was weaker, which is why Satan went after her. Well, again, it's not what the text says. Like, if anything, it took, it took a talking serpent 
a while to talk Eve into it. Adam was like, oh, okay. No argument. Right? It's just so interesting to me how we can... I'm sure you've bumped into it. I'm sure you've heard it. Like such a common way of framing what this text is about. When you just read it with some fresh eyes, you're like, I'm not sure that's what it's actually saying. It's like Princess Bride. You should not use that narrative. I do not think it means what you think it does. Um, and, And so... Well, now, now we get to the result. And this is interesting because this is where God actually starts treating Adam and Eve differently for the first time. And so the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Nakedness wasn't just like people <laughs> like middle schoolers. It was a sign that they just felt totally safe, that they could be totally vulnerable and open and be themselves with each other. That's what it's a sign of. But now they viewed the state they were in as a problem. Trust had broken down. They were not in a safe space with each other anymore. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths, which is a really bad idea because fig leaves can give you some really nasty boils and you know we all know where the fig leaves go and that's not going to be good. Well, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and they hid themselves, feeling in a safe space with God was broken Um, so they hid themselves but the Lord God called to them and this is like comedy moment you know we're like viewing this as outsiders so we get to giggle that God who knows and sees everything Adam's like hiding behind a bush you know like that's going to work this is like the game where it's when you walk in and your four year olds be naughty and you can clearly see the quivering lump under the duvet and you say Hazel where are you (laughs) Not that she did that recently. Um, yeah, it's that sort of moment. And we're supposed to think, not, not just um, that trust is broken, but look how stupid people can be now. Look, like, and, and, and that sense of like, weakness and foolishness that's coming out of the text with these humans gets amplified. So he says, I heard you coming. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. And so now God starts to question, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, it was her. It's her fault. I'm paraphrasing. But that's the gist of it. So it's really interesting. You know, these two people that were designed to be partners, all of a sudden have become opponents in a game of shame and guilt avoidance. It just, it's so radically different to what they were designed for. And so well, I say that um, God starts to treat male and female different. The, the first treating differently we see is actually the way the man and the woman are treating each other different. Um, and so uh, it, it was the woman's fault. And the Lord said to the woman, what's this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. There's your word. And I ate. And then God speaks to the serpent. The serpent. And I think it's really telling because there is a narrative within like Reformation theology, like and I assume Protestant theology, that the root of the fall is Eve, and she's the bad guy, bad girl, and it's all her fault. God does not say that. He does not blame Adam and say, "You idiot! Why did you listen to that woman? You should have just you're in charge." 
He did not say to the woman, how dare you deceive your husband? What a stupid thing to do. Why did you listen to the talking snake? Like God actually says, yeah, that's what happened. Here's the consequence. So it's, really, it's really interesting the, the way it actually goes down. Uh, and so something to really take away from this is that the woman is not the bad guy. God identifies the bad guy. It's the talking snake. God does not become humankind's enemy here. The enemy of humankind gets identified. And it's not, it's not male versus female. But we're going to see in the consequences of the fall, the problems between man and woman are now, are now have entered into this partnership. And we're not going to unpack loads of detail here. But I want you to notice that the serpent in verse 14... God says, because you've done this, you are cursed. And explains the nature of the curse. I've run into so many people where they're like, oh yeah, Genesis 3, like the fall, then what happens next? And then God curses Adam and Eve. No. You read, you look, I promise you, you can keep looking for hours and hours. You will not see God cursing the man and the woman. God curses the snake. But he does explain that there's a brokenness but I always want you to catch that it's a brokenness, but in the midst of the brokenness is a reaffirmation of the commission. To the woman, he said, now I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. They weren't supposed to be ruling over each other at all. They were supposed to be ruling over creation. What's happened? Something about the, the sort of strata of creation that's God the images of God and creation is called fuzzy like something's broken down but in the midst of saying hey having kids now is going to be painful can you imagine an Eve who's like oh, I, I was I was so excited to like rule and be fruitful and multiply and I've blown it and God says no you're still in effect you're still my image bearer you're still going to be fruitful you're still going to do the thing I designed you to do. It's just that now it's going to be painful and hard. and It's not going to go the way it was supposed to. And I love that in the midst of God explaining the consequence, there's still the ingredients of affirmation about what they actually are, that they're God's image bearers. Same thing to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed. In pain you'll eat of it. Thorns and thistles will bring forth. And you'll eat as you eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. So you're still going to bring order. You're still going to go subdue. You're still going to go tend this creation. But now it's going to fight back. Now it's going to be hard. It's going to be it's going to be sweaty. It's going to be painful. Um, and then they have to leave the garden. And that's a whole. We'll get into that in another class. So so there's there's a little. I tried to hit some details. Molly, what did I miss that was important? Because I'm sure there's some stuff. Um, good question. Yeah, we're going to do Q&A in like four minutes. Make sure, but write it down. I don't want you to forget because I really want to get, okay, love it, Robin. Okay. Uh, the one thing that I just want to draw attention to because I think that there is some confusion around um, this particular word desire that's used. Oh, your yes. desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
And there's some controversy around whether this desire is good or bad. Is the desire for her husband uh, loving and affectionate and the consequences that even though she's going to be loving and affectionate towards her husband, he's going to be the worst? That seems like a very weird paradigm to introduce into the conversation. So uh, spend some time studying this particular word desire. It's used two other places in the entirety of the Old Testament. The first is one chapter later in the Cain and Abel story. And it's a negative word used. It's talking about sin. Sin is crouching at the door. It's uh, Genesis 4, verse 5 and 6. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to is, is for you, and you, you need to rule over it. The second is in the Song of Solomon, where we're talking a little bit more about the affectionate, uh, if you fill in the blank, Song of Solomon type desire. So two times in the Old, Te- in the Old Testament. A lot of people have translated this type of desire to be positive in its connotation, in that the woman's desire is to be for her husband, and the consequence is that he's just going to be dominant. The reality is, based on the way that we interpret this word desire, it's most closely used one chapter later, rather than by a different author in a different context, in a different time period, where it would make little to no sense that those two words are running parallel to each other. The word desire used one chapter later is more uh, accurately the same type of desire used in chapter chapter 3 of Genesis. So it's important to note that the Genesis 3 consequence between uh, the wrestling of of authority and power that might be taking place in what's being called out in Genesis 3 is the desire is actually negative. The desire will be for your husband, not in an affectionate, loving way. But in the same way that sin is crouching at the door desiring to rule over you in a dominant way, in an inappropriate way, in a way that I have not created you to live into this world, and he will rule over you. So it's calling out a power struggle. It's calling out an effect of the fall where men and women are going to be living not in partnership as God's designed it to, both of them ruling and subduing and using the authority that God has given them outward to, to cultivate uncultivated land. But rather, it's going to be turned inward, and it's going to be a wrestling match from here on out. So that was something I just wanted to identify, because yeah, that particular good. word sometimes gets a little bit lost in the sauce, if you yeah, will, uh, in translation. We've got five minutes, and I think that's a good amount of time for the Q&A, rather than more content being thrown at them. Does that sound good? Yeah. Okay. So questions as we've dived into the topic. Already great. Okay, one, and then you'll, you'll be next. Yeah, great question. I can answer that real quickly. 
Okay. Just really briefly, we've already been fruitful and multiplied. There's plenty of people on this earth. You know what I mean? So the fruit now, I think, is the, the, the fruits of the gospel. So I don't think you have to have kids anymore. I think yeah. that's been accomplished in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, a few things. I would answer the question differently for non-Christians because I wouldn't want to like presume a paradigm that they're not uh, living into already or recognizing as authority. So we'll put that to the side for just a second. Uh, something I think is worth being acknowledged here is that she's called the mother of all living, and that can uh, speak to the, the physical procreation of bringing new life, but she's also a life bearer in the more holistic sense, in, in sp bringing spiritual life and like holistic life. And we see that even reframed as Jesus comes into the picture. Matthew 28, 19 go and make disciples of all nations. That's a type of being fruitful and multiplying that has a lot more of a spiritual uh, command to it, of being fruitful and multiplying in a spiritual sense, growing the family of God, not just physically, not just biologically, but spiritually as well, raising up spiritual uh, children, mothers, spiritual mothers and fathers. And I think this is a particularly uh, important question and conversation I recognize the irony as I sit here seven months pregnant, but not, <laughs> not, not like there is a lot of pain in childbirth. There's a lot of pain in this process, not just if you have a kid, but if you can't have a kid, or if you you feel like your biology is working against you. So there's a there's something to be recognized even in the midst of this conversation that uh, Eve herself is not cursed. The process is what has been made more difficult. And that doesn't just mean to the physical pain of childbirth, but maybe even the desire to bring children into the world and not being able to, or having to wrestle with infertility, those types of things. All of it is, is being called out as painful. So I think there is something to be acknowledged about um, the reframing of Matthew 28 as a spiritual call to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples of all nations. Uh, I think that there are people that, uh, good and godly people, that would disagree uh, on whether or not we are commanded to have children. I'm going to pass the mic to you yeah. on that one. I don't know. But I was just going to, Colossians 1 is my favorite. Like Paul commends the church for being fruitful and multiplying as they are conforming to Christ, as the church is growing. So that's another, like clearly the New Testament writers are picking up this theme as something that means more than just having children. But I'd also say there is something here in Genesis which is like God's design for biology is to be able to have kids. Um, or God's design for humanness is to be able to produce more humans. Okay? Um, so two really important things. Uh, and um, and I think sometimes we make lots of comments to kind of ameliorate the pain if you can't or don't want to or, you know, the tension there. Um, and, and one thing I want to say does do that, and that's um, we tend to really individualize how to apply Genesis. The biblical authors would have seen this identity as being played out by a community of humans. It wouldn't have been the expectation that every single human is constantly popping out kids. That's, that's not what a fulfillment of this mandate meant. They had a much more communal way of viewing, like, not am I fulfilling this, but are we fulfilling this? And so you can imagine, like, lots of different types of community and how that could work in different ways. You know, 
people bearing children at different ages, different phases of life, in different social norms, you know, things like that. Um, the, the other part, though, I, I think it's okay to say, like, there does seem to be something about, like, wanting to have kids that's a good thing, but not a necessary thing, because of the community thing, but a good thing. And when it can't happen, it's okay to say, that's broken. Like, let's grieve that. Like, that's not restored kingdom-like. And to be able to step in, not to saying, oh, it doesn't matter because, but saying, like, yeah, like, that's, that's really sad. And we, like, and we empathize and grieve the same way we would all areas of brokenness, where, where things are not the way God designed them to be. Uh, and, and I think that extends all the way to attitudes to the fall. Like, Molly's going to have a baby. It's going to be painful. I'm not going to just say to her, well, you know, don't worry, it's God's design. Like, it'll be fine. She'll slap me. And right right so, I hope she would. That would be an idiotic thing to say. It's okay to look at the pain and say, that's not good. Because God's not saying it's good. He's saying it's bad because it's a consequence of what's happened. And so I think it's just important to include that sometimes as well. I will get back to you next week. Can we write that down? I have not looked up the Latin. Oh, look, Molly knows it. Look at this. <laughs> yeah, I want to know now. You've piqued my interest. I think Molly's about to tell us. I hope you are. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the other, so it's used 16 times in the Old Testament. Uh, 13 of those times is referred to God, to God. And the way that it's translated in most of the translations is actually strength. So Ezra is used as the word strength. Um, and then paired with connecto, it's someone who shares their strength with another. So that's the type of partnership that's taking place between Adam and Eve, is not that her sh- strength is supposed to be kept to herself, but that her strength is being shared with the person that God has given her as a partner, which I think is what Richard was getting at there. Three other times it's used to, uh, in, a mid- in a more like military context, when another nation comes to Israel's aid to help them, or vice versa, and then we see it in Genesis as well. I guess what I really want to know is what word were they specifically... You mean in Genesis as well? In Genesis. Yeah. I'll, I'll look up the Latin and Middle English. So that, that, makes a, that makes a big deal. Yeah. 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 So next week, point of business, I'll get back to you. I'll look it up. Any other questions? Look to the ceiling on the left, look to the ceiling on the right. I guess not. I have two questions, and one of them kind of goes off that too, which I'm excited to hear that expanded on. Um, Just like the Ezra in general, I was just wondering, like, the specific to it because I was just looking at like the blue letter bible mm-hmm. and I couldn't find it. I was only seeing helper. And then I saw like the, the last um, syllable like as or something. Yeah. And then that said strength. Mm-hmm. But it was later and but it was really clear the word helper. Mm-hmm. But I think like helper is beautiful. Mm-hmm. God is preferred 
yeah. to as helper. Yeah. Yeah. And so even like turning that word back into like how like submission is a beautiful word, like helper is a beautiful word as well. It's just then we take it as something different. Yeah. 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 I think I think the the connotation around help feels like maybe the bigger problem than just it being translated as help. Uh, because God is called helper yeah. all the time. But but another way that NIV in particular translated it translates it as is as strength. And even the, what you're dis- both describing, that's such a great example of how culture colors a word for us. If I say, God helps me, something springs to mind. If I say, Molly helps me, something different springs to mind. Like, that's our culture <laughs> shaping things. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just that, what a great example of that. Yeah. You said, yeah. So we've recorded, we'll see how it comes out, because we're not recording with the mic, we're just recording the room. Um, so yeah, we've got those available. And then like, there's something we didn't get to do this evening, which was we wanted to um, say, okay, so things go wrong, what happens next in the culture of the people of God, or just society in general through the Old Testament? Because there's a huge amount of patriarchy. What do we do with that? And you know, is that normative? Is what's happening there the way it's supposed to be? Or are there clues that God actually is trying to move the needle? And so um, I think rather than say, let's do it next week, Molly and I had already planned on making this week's House of Learning podcast uh, capture things we didn't get to put in the class. 
So it like that's the, the so the next bit of the conversation that will will release that on Friday. If you just get a podcast app and search for House of Learning, you'll find it. Um, and we'll we'll look at sort of how patriarchy emerges, whether it's normative, and um, we won't be able to do all of them. We'll, but we'll each pick some of our sort of favourite uh, people through the story that help, um, yeah, helps think through a little more clearly um, the way God's interacting with patriarchy. I guess good way to phrase it. So that'll be Friday. So next bit of the conversation, and that'll then leave us hopefully ready next week we'll, we'll it, um, not as much social history but we can have some New Testament Greco-Roman world history um, and then there's just if people are going to be like yeah but what about this verse most of them are in the New Testament so that's why we've got two weeks then unpack look at it in its cultural context try and figure out like what it's saying and talk a little bit about like a, maybe a bit more space for responding to this truth um, as well as like what how can the church become more, more healthy in light of what the scriptures say yeah so that's what's coming up so I'm going to pray because Molly got to pray earlier so my time Jesus thank you for the evening thank you for your word thank you for your truth and thank you for your spirit um, we recognize that this is your book and your truth and we look to you to make it clear to us and do the all-important work of showing us how to respond to it. And so keep teaching us. Um, this class is not the end of the conversation, but hopefully it opens it up and you're going to help us thrive in it. You're going to teach us, continue to speak to us, and use us to bring health to your world in this area where there's a lot of unhealth. So be with us this week. Keep us thinking about these things, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you for being here. Thanks, guys. See you next time. So the patriarchy doesn't come from the dead Genesis where we just were, does it? You will roll over. What's that? You're actually for your husband and you will roll over. Is that basic? That we're patriarchy? Yes. No, the first time we see the establishment of the patriarchs is actually...